0: there we are. Hello. How are you doing? <laughs> Very well. Thank you. I'm, uh, really, really glad to be here with you guys. I've been watching you, uh, talk about the, the collaborative sale for several weeks now. And I, I have to say I'm, I'm both humbled and, uh, and, and impressed. So thank you so much for doing that. It's, thank uh, you. It's been awesome.
1: <laughs> How have you been?
0: Very well. Thank you. Yeah. it's. uh, I'm speaking to you outside of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in a town called Athens, where the University of Georgia is located. So uh, that's where I live. So you're now looking at the Southeastern Regional Office of Sales Performance International.
1: Fantastic. And how's biz?
0: (laughs) Business is good. Um, You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've always thought that people invest in their sales teams as a early indicator of where they think the economy is going to go. Uh, if they think the world is looking up, they tend to invest more, and that seems to be the case. So, uh, investing in the stock market That tells you something about, <laughs> I think, where the where the economy is going. People are optimistic, and so uh, it's been a, it's been good a good year for us, uh, and we expect big things this year.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Why don't they invest when times are tough? Surely that's when you invest. Well,
0: well surely you just invest think, full stop. On the other hand, you know, people people cut back on. Training and development, and on on uh, technology and things that they see as you know, we'll wait for times to get better. Uh, that's and the I, just, I think it's just more of a a question of expediency rather than wisdom.
1: Yeah, I reckon. You'll have to excuse me because I'm wearing my very focal glasses, so I'm going to start. Uh, I'll, I'll look a little bit ridiculous at times during the conversation as I try and look at my Are notes.
0: back, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm familiar with that syndrome. So yeah, I understand.
1: Cool. Okay, right, Lauren, let's do it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is, you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is, tell everyone about Book Club.
1: Well, we are back for another episode of Book Club, and today we have, I'm going to use the word, the legendary Timothy T. Sullivan on the show. (laughs) I, I,
2: I completely agree. We've been really excited about this do, one, Tim. Do, do you know? I told my wife this morning. She said, "What are you doing at work today?" And so we're speaking to somebody called Timothy T. Sullivan. She went, "No, nah, I never heard of him." And yeah, I know. Like, well, if you're in sales, <laughs> you would have heard of this guy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe a little bit of background, Tim. Do you, do you want to give us and give our audience a little bit of just a quick potted history behind you, solutions selling the collaborative sale before we get into talking about the book?
0: Sure thing. Uh, my role at Sales Performance International, who are the uh, owners and developers of solution selling and now the latest version, which we call the collaborative sale, uh, is uh, corporate vice president of business development, which is interesting because what that basically means is I work with our clients to help configure solutions to their unique requirements, right. uh, which means we tend to get involved in some of the more challenging and uh, interesting situations. So they call me the VP of weird stuff at SPI. <laughs> Um but but that's how we learn things, you know, that's how you stretch uh concepts and learn new concepts and, and see what best practices are going out there. So uh we then take those lessons learned and then try to codify them in a way that we can then provide to others so that they can improve the performance in their own organization. I've been there for 16 years. Wow. Uh, before that, um I worked at uh Siebel Systems, uh which is a large CRM vendor. Yeah. Uh, now part of Oracle. Uh, so I know a lot about uh, how to uh, overinvest in CRM projects. Happy <laughs> to talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, and, and then before that, uh, I worked for an organization called OnTarget, which is known for the uh, Target Account Selling Opportunity Management Methodology. You right. may have heard of that, uh, where I uh, contributed to uh, some of that development and was the VP of marketing there for a while. And before that, I was a software and professional services salesperson. I started my career at a company called Management Science America back in the early 80s. Wow. Which at the time was the world's largest software company, although no one remembers that anymore. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I cut my teeth on selling enterprise application software to uh, Fortune 500 companies. So uh, that's a little bit about my career and how we got to where we are. In fact, uh, I will tell you a story. Uh, When I was at MSA... One of Mike Bosworth's uh, first clients, in fact, we were the second client he had, uh, he came and taught us solution selling. So I was exposed to solution selling back in 1982. And of course, Mike wrote the original book and did the pioneering research at Xerox. And wow. uh, then I reconnected with SPI and then uh, we had acquired that uh, that intellectual property and in Keith Keyfeeds and his team had built on it. I had something to do with that. And now we're into the uh, next generation, which we call the collaborative sale.
1: Fantastic. And you mentioned just then um, you were talking about target account selling. I mean, when I first mm-hmm. came into sales recruitment, people used to talk about the gold standard of sales methodologies as Taz, Holden, Spin, Miller, right. Hyman. Uh, I didn't know that actually you'd been involved in some of the creation of the IP around the original Taz training.
0: Yep, that's correct. I was involved in building uh, or contributing to some of the development of the later versions, although a lot of work had been done before then by Alston Gardner and others. Uh, It was well established, uh, but uh, learned a lot about uh, effective opportunity management, qualification, political navigation, and the decision process. Uh, And it's it's really helped me out as I've moved forward in my career. Um, I've been involved in developing and building a lot of methodologies. If you look at Our portfolio of uh, methodologies and best practices, it covers the entire gamut of everything from uh, opportunity planning, as we said, channel management, uh, account planning, all the way through to advanced selling skills uh, that are required to support. But the main flagship product for SPI has always been solution selling, which is about how do sellers engage with buyers in a way where they're aligned and then how do they execute to come to a, a mutually beneficial decision and win yeah. more sales. So uh, that's, that's been my you know, primary focus for the last 16 years.
1: Right. So I've got to say, we've really enjoyed the collaborative sale, haven't we, Mike?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because prior to,
2: you know, us getting online with you, Timothy, we, uh, Jonathan and I were talking about it and we take notes and prepare questions that we can talk to the authors about. And Johnny said, what do you reckon? I said, well, it's a funny one for me, this. Because I'm normally sat here ready to really rip into the authors and give them a little bucket load of grief. Because um, I'm a very cynical man, actually. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I have a mind that is hard to change. I'm stubborn. But I've got to say, I read it. And I did I did like the original solution selling, actually. But I really mm. like the book. And I've got more stuff to talk to you about rather than necessarily sit here with a critical eye, really. yeah. about you, Jonathan?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've got a few questions I'd love to ask you today. and And... The first one really is, I was reading part one earlier. and I just reread over my notes from some of the early shows we've done. Foundations of the collaborative sale. And you talk a little bit about solution selling and you've said, you know, collaborative sale is many respects the newer version. Is solution selling defunct now?
0: That's a really good question. And in fact, when Keith Eads and I, he was the CEO of uh, SPI. He's now retired. He's he's doing, uh, he's still doing deals. He's in the real estate business now these days. Okay. You know, but uh, when Keith and I talked about this book and i had made the observation and there was a lot of criticism of solution selling. You recall, there were been some articles in uh, Harvard Business Reviews and others that said, hey, solution selling is dead. You know, uh, the, the idea of engaging with customers and asking them a lot of questions about their situation. Uh, you know, uh, similar to a spin selling approach, uh, that's out of outmoded today. Today, you have to come with a hypothesis and provoke customers and challenge their thinking and get them off the status quo. Um, and so, the there was a real question about you know, is solution selling relevant anymore? Uh, and so we said, okay, let's step back and take a look at that. Let's look at the facts. Talk yeah. to our clients and customers. Do some research. See see what hap- uh, whether or not solution selling really is defunct, as you said. And if it was, okay, fine, lesson learned, let's figure out what the right things are and move on from there. But um, when we really took a look at the data and we outlined a lot of that in the first third of the book, what we found out was, well, number one, solution selling is probably more relevant today than it ever has been. Uh, The need to help customers and buyers understand the problems that they have and how to then overcome those in a way that creates real value is probably more critical to sales success now than ever before. It's just the ways that we uh, execute on a solution-centric approach and the ways that we engage with customers has changed because buyers have changed. Yes, they You know, have. we have this thing called the internet now, and uh, you may have heard of it. <laughs> the interweb. <And> so, <laughs> I mean, that's changed everything. Customers yep. can go online and they can do searches and then they can be talking to your customers in, you know, less than 15 minutes in many cases. So. Yep. A dialogue is going on, and now it's up to sellers now to know how to get involved in that dialogue and to add value to that. And that's dramatically changed a lot of the uh, fundamental uh, approaches that solution selling had recommended when it was first composed way back in the early 80s. Um, However, I do think that the core solution selling is more relevant now than ever before. Number one, it's always been based on aligning with buyers where they are. Yeah. Where are our buyers? Because we can engage with buyers very early in a, in a purchase cycle, in the middle of the purchase cycle, toward the end, and our behavior then becomes, uh, it's incumbent upon us to adapt that. Most sellers don't do that. They yep. approach sellers, their buyers, and they they just sell the same way they always have. Uh, so that's always been a fundamental principle. And, be, and based on that, regardless of how the buyer behavior has changed, solution selling can still be relevant. Uh, and I also think that the way that we – add value to uh, to buyers as they're going through the process. That's always been a, a fundamental part of solution selling as well. Yeah. And that has not changed very much. Okay. The other the thing as well is that while buyers are certainly more educated today, the fundamental psychology of buyers is that they go through an evaluation and purchase process as much as we have tried to torture test it. That has not changed very much either. Uh, no. So you have those foundations in place, then It's really a question, not so much of whether or not you do solution selling, but how it is that you execute it. That's what we covered in the
1: book. The buying journey is still the same. Certain parts of it are more accelerated now, and certain parts of it are more truncated, but the buying journey is still the same.
0: You know, to to a large extent, I think that's correct. There are are some details uh, that are different. Uh, I was listening to some of your discussions uh, about the book as well. And uh, we originally wrote this back in uh, 2014. Yeah. So the book is about uh, five or six years old now. So uh, some things have certainly changed. I was at a Gartner sales marketing conference uh, toward the end of last year, and they released some research that shows that the, for B2B purchases, strategic purchases in particular, uh, the number of people that are involved in the purchase process and the number of people involved in each step, has increased by you know more than thirty percent on average over the last two years. So, Why? more people are involved in the purchase process, and so as a result, the need for sellers to be more of a consensus builder. You know, I call it being a therapist to a buying <laughs> organization. Um, that's that's definitely uh, uh, affected yeah. the, the purchase process. Um, But the fundamental psychology where we talk about the different phases that buyers go through from a very early or latent state through an evaluation phase, ultimately to make a purchase, that has not changed. Uh, And so we can use that. That's good because we can use that model to help sellers know, okay, which kind of customer am I talking to? And therefore, how do I shift the gears and change my behavior to adapt to their situation?
1: Why do you think there are more buying influences involved? in a complex sale now
0: yeah why do i think that's happening um quite simply and we talk about it a lot i think that while buyers are more educated than ever before part of the problem now is that the world has figured this out and this is certainly more true today than when we originally wrote the book i mean how much content marketing do you receive in a week Oh, it's just an overwhelming amount. Now the problem is that buyers, it's good that they have access to information, but now they're overwhelmed. And a lot of it, Definitely. Is just bad information and it's very poorly done. So so there there's a lot of confusion out there. So one of the reasons why people are bringing more people into the purchase process is to mitigate risk. Yeah. How can we make sure I call it getting more fingerprints on the murder weapon? You know, so. If we're all going to make these decisions and it's strategically important, let's make sure that everyone has come to consensus and agrees with where we're going. So they see bringing people in to evaluate this vast quantity of information and do an evaluation. So I, I think it's just a risk mitigation strategy.
1: I, I and, wonder, uh, is it? I, I wonder, sorry. I wonder has technology driven it, Tim, in as much mm-hmm. as we there is so much collaborative technology available now. And maybe we'll talk about that again later on. Yes where things like Slack, Asana, technologies like that, where people are collaborating so quickly now, you know, Bill Gates talked about business at the speed of thought, what, 10, 15 years ago. Um, And there's so much of that collaboration now taking place that it's so much easier to bring people into conversation. And therefore what would have been one guy carrying a can who would have made a decision, who would have then gone to his boss and said, I've made a decision on this procurement, is now it's a lot easier for a group to be involved Uh, because it's so collaborative.
2: I think it also comes from the other side as well, doesn't it? Because actually, it's a lot easier for somebody who previously wouldn't have been involved in a procurement process to have an opinion because because of the frequency and the availability of the media. Somebody else That's can right. come up to the boss and say, Listen, boss, have you considered point X or point Y? And then all of a sudden they're then a decision maker. And they can add value. In that point well, they can add value, yeah. But yeah. I think it's the it, you need a filtering mechanism if you're a buyer, you don't you? To filter out those unwanted people in the process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing I was going to ask you today, or something else I wanted to talk about was and you yourself have just said that the you know, it's five years since the book came out. You talk about buyer two I, I, I'm obsessed and and I've written all over the book that I think we're at by a 3.0 now.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I saw you make that, I heard you make that comment several times and whether it's call it 2.5
1: or,
0: you know, (laughs) 3.0 or 6.0, whatever you want to call call it. You know, do, are buyers continuing to change? And the answer is yes. You yeah. talked about collaborative technology. When we had wrote, written about that in the book, that was just beginning. And, yeah. you know, and so it was something that was fairly new. Now it's standard practice on the seller side to use collaborative technology like we use Showpad now to create secure uh, collaboration sites and yeah. just forward information like the collaboration plan and so forth, which customers really appreciate. But on their side, they have. These advanced collaboration technologies like Slack, for example, that you mentioned, that was all at the very beginning five years ago. Yeah, Today, it's in practice, and that certainly affects things uh, in, in, a, in a very material way. But I'm also seeing a lot of other changes in buyer behavior as well, certainly because of the technology and the ability to share information. More people are getting involved. Sales cycles. Uh, the, the most disturbing trend that I have seen, which has been true for some time but it continues to be the case, is that it's okay increasingly for buyers to go through a long evaluation cycle with many people involved and decide to do nothing? You know, the loss yeah. to notice to status quo. To
1: oh, we've just lost you for a second. Not- one, second Tim. one second, Tim.
0: So we're, we are continuing to see changes in buyer behavior, and uh, and so I think you're right. We're on we're on version at least buyer 3.0, if not further down the yeah. line
1: today. Well, I, I wrote here. There's so many products and so many enterprise products can be bought. Now, I was online the other day, looking at right. this enterprise software vendor, um, it's open source technology, but it's big value stuff, and they have an enterprise sales team, but a customer can go on, download this particular piece of technology, and yeah. play with it, without anybody in the organization ever knowing, and they can try okay. it, play with it, toy with it, before they even think about instigating a project, creating budget, um, and I think that is a huge seismic shift. I agree. In in the way that technology is sold and or bought. Now you know, Michael yeah. and I are into, we're we're evaluating some technology at the moment. Um, and I'm just trialing three different technologies. Well,
2: you are buyer 2.0, aren't you? Yeah. As as written in this book. In the book, I, yeah.
1: Absolutely on the definition of it. I'm tr- I'm literally sat at my desk just trialing several technologies. One of which, you know, they're a small vendor and I've said, look, I'll pay you for the trial to be fair to you. But our outlay and the pain of our outlay in trialing and evaluating those technologies is so little. And Mm -hmm. my knowledge is so
2: great. It's also very dangerous, I think. Go on, why? Because I think that, you know, as you refer to in the book, you talk about in the olden days. I don't think you use the word olden days, but in in the olden days, the information the buyer got was from the seller. So if we were to say the seller was a good, solid, honest Joe that wouldn't mislead his buyer, which, of course, all IT salespeople are. Of course. that okay. actually, the buyer is well-led. Whereas at the minute, Jonathan, you're a buyer who is leading yourself. Correct. And you're looking at the landscape through your and actually, none and vision. So, what, of the, are you, so what are you missing?
1: Correct. None of those sales guys involved in any – I mean, we're not an enterprise – client no not one of them has grabbed me by the you know what's and, and yeah. challenged me really um i've led the procurement and they are facilitating my evaluation and i'm i'd like to point out if any of them are listening they're all doing a really good job
2: yeah anyway can i steal the limelight a little bit because he's been asking you all maybe, the questions and i need to maybe you that's because i prepared better Go than you now, so, so, <laughs> so when i was reading this book right i, I was thinking to myself. What's now required for a modern seller to sell in this era is a much more multifaceted seller.
0: Yes, I agree. So I've got
2: to be a micro marketeer. I've got Mm -hmm. to have situational fluency and the intelligence that goes with it. I've got to understand my market. I've got to understand my product. And I couldn't help but think, all right, it suits me because I'm a sales recruiter. But I couldn't help but think this is going to have a big knock on. You know, if you were a, a VP of some company recruiting a salespeople and you've got you sat next to you, there's got to be it's, there's got to be a big training element to people that you hire, or you, or there's a black hole of the candidates not having this sufficient quality to be able to carry out this, uh, this model. What are your thoughts on yeah. that?
0: I totally agree. Um, I gave a talk recently at a, uh, a technology user conference and the title of the speech, uh, and also our CEO, Jürgen Heyman gave uh, this uh, to uh, at their European event as well. And that is our salespeople disappearing. And the reason for that is that we have seen industries in which the, the traditional face-to-face salesperson, uh, which I, you know, that's how I grew up. And and based on your experience, uh, mm. same kind of background. Yeah. Um, that that is, that has declined in many industries, the pharmaceutical industry, especially in the U.S., because the buying model has changed and the, of course, there's regulatory Pressures as well. The number of pharmaceutical reps has gone down to a tenth wow. of what it used to be just a few years ago. Were less than there are about thirty thousand pharmaceutical reps, and there used to be well over three hundred thousand in the in the U.S. Uh, and the reason for that, I think, is because buyers have got better access to information. Um, the the interesting thing, and this gets at the point, uh, the the sellers that are left, however, that remain are at a much higher skill level. Than they used to be, say five or ten years ago. Yeah, you know they have to be a able to to understand the buyer's uh, industry. They have to be experts in what their challenges are. They have mm-hmm. to be experts on their own products. We talk about situational fluency in the book, and all of the things that sellers need to master in order to be effective today. Yep. Uh, and they truly need to be you know business consultants, not just. I mean, we've been hearing that for years and years, but. It really is becoming a requirement now so the skill level of the sellers who remain you now frankly if if we can if you're just showing up and being a walking talking brochure and doing the presentation uh, and waiting for the customer to say i'm ready to buy we don't need you you're adding no value no. we can do that with a website much more effectively well, and you, so we
2: well, you see your book raises an interesting point because i can either do if i'm a company i can do one of two things I can put all the intelligence in the salesperson and I can go out and right. hire micro marketers, somebody with situational fluency, somebody with knowledge, all those things. Or and that's gonna be an expensive person, right? Yes. Or I can or, or I can create a business system that breaks down each of those component parts. Right. And I can re, and I can hire cheap people that actually all the cheap person does is they turn up as a walking brochure. And I yeah. think a lot, you know, I think a lot of the SaaS-based companies who are giving away, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago, I think yeah. they're creating the latter of those things. Yes. So they don't need a micro marketer. So I don't need somebody with situational fluency.
0: I agree. There, there's been a lot of effort to take the sales process and break that up into pieces where we have specialists in the such as sales development or business development SDRs, yeah. process who are doing a lot of those micro marketing or just making telephone calls and trying to get appointments, right? Uh, that we have a variety of sales or technical support specialists who take aspects mm-hmm. of situational fluency and bring it together. We even have people who are in some industries. I've seen professional closers who come in at the end yeah. to negotiate with per- procurement and purchasing and do the deal. So, That's not something that we had uh, written about extensively in the book, but it's definitely a trend It is that if I can't expect one salesperson because it's overwhelming or too much or too expensive Mm. to be able to master all the process, then they will break it up into different parts and then we'll have to map out where the handoffs are. I think that spells out an even greater need for mapping out a dynamic borrow line sales process or optimizing what we think is the customer engagement because if you're going to have handoffs, from one group to the next, or passing things back and forth, you know, being able to define those roles and how they engage is even more critically important. So mm-hmm. even within those disciplines, there's an overall higher skill level. Absolutely. Uh, right.
1: And I think yeah. a lot of it is being driven by this Silicon Valley need for what they refer to as blitz scaling. Yes. And, and yeah. it's to a be able to
0: ramp up fast. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And so
1: it's huge SDR marketing automation run through the SDR team. SDR team generate huge volumes of leads. The SDR qualifies the lead and sends a sales guy out to go negotiate the deal. Yes. If, if at all.
0: I agree. And another big trend that we have seen that's affected Bar 3.0, if we can call it that way, is focus on customer experience. And yeah. we touch on that a little bit in the book, but not very much really. And we realize now that when we're defining what that optimized, bar-aligned sales process really is, what we're really doing is we're defining what it's like on our side of the mirror of what on the other side is the buyer customer experience. We're defining an optimal customer experience with the sales team, which you know, as CEB and others have researched is more than half of the customer experience and probably yeah. the most important part because it happens at the beginning and nothing happens yeah. unless someone decides to buy something. So. Um, defining the, an optimal way to use your sales resources to provide a good customer experience is becoming more critical to the I selling equation today. So definitely a change that I would make if we were to revise the book today.
1: What's interesting is in retail, which, you, you know, doesn't have that many similarities, but does is if we look, I don't know what it's like in the U S but in in England, retail has been decimated, hasn't it? But traditional high street retail yeah, has been decimated but what, what what has emerged is a new wave of retailers where they create a customer experience around what would have been or has been by technology turned into a utilitarian buying experience right so they create an experience around making the procurement in store that as opposed to just easily buying it online and i think that there is a place for that buying experience even in an enterprise sale people want that warmer safer more comforting less fear-inducing buying experience still and there'll always be there'll always be a place for a professional who can who can create that experience for a customer as opposed to them going online and coldly evaluating a product at home at eight o'clock at night in front of the tv yeah
0: I have a comment on that. I, I was reading some research by uh Forrester and Gardner's also done some work on this as well. But the B the buying experience for B2B used to be very different than B2C. They're yeah. not so different anymore. I mean, huh? they're, you know, you go online and you do a search and you figure out what's out there and you look at various alternatives and then you uh, evaluate them and you might speak to a specialist. Uh, you might go down to the retail organization and talk to somebody, or you might call a sales rep on the. You know, the the essential process is looking more and more the same today. I think the lines between B two B and B two C are becoming increasingly blurred today. Yeah. Because in either case, it's all about the customer experience, and the highest quality customer experience wins.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. You got any other questions there? Mark?
0: I
2: have. So here's. So I'm going to make reference to page ninety three. Can you remember? Okay. What- Can you remember what's on it? He's he's copying with him. (laughs) All right. And now, now, now this is a model for those people. For those, because we have quite a lot of uh, listeners rather than viewers. Oh yes. And basically, we've got a table here that talks about not looking and looking. It talks about latent state, admitted state, vision state, evaluation state, and it talks about the state of a buyer. And what you talk about is marketing to people who are not looking and who are in the latent state. Now I was surprised that you put that because you said that buyer 2.0 is risk averse so surely they'll
0: just do nothing can you just talk to me about that please well I think it's because they're risk averse that that buyer 2.0 wants to engage in conversations that that early uh, in the decision process that are valuable to them okay uh, actually it changes uh, for a long time you know we could just broadcast uh, marketing, uh, offers and get certain amount of response and then qualify those responses and move on. And there's cert- that still happens today. That's still going on. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. But increasingly sales, uh, or buying decisions are about conversations. People are always looking for ways to improve their situation and, and create real value, uh, either for themselves or their, or their businesses. And so to that end, to the extent that we as sellers can engage with early stage buyers, to participate in those conversations and demonstrate you know, some different thinking, or provoke, truly provoke them, as you said, or challenge them yes. to move them off the status quo, then we can create opportunities. The, the challenge that we have is how do I balance that? Okay, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that I like everything on LinkedIn, and does it mean I go on Twitter and post occasionally? And a lot of sellers confuse social selling with those kinds of activities. Yeah. And, we could talk you know, about I, that for hours, by the way. The social we'll, selling
1: thing. We will come back to we'll that. We'll
0: come back to that. Sorry. <laughs> it's cra- I mean, it, it's a, it's crazy thinking. And the sad thing is, you know, I, my, I worked for a sales manager at MSA and started my career. And he says, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the point being that, you know, if I'm doing social selling, occasionally I'll find someone who says, oh yeah, I'd like to talk about it. And then they'll think, oh, see that? I'm doing it correctly. They're really not. The, the point is, what value do they? Have? We talk about challenging salespeople to, to determine or define their own brand, right? Where? What is their set of expertise? Mm-hmm. If someone asks you, "What do I? What do you do for a living?" Do you define yourself by the products that you sell, or do you define yourself by the problems that you solve and the value that you create? And that's that's a different mindset for sellers. So. Even if they are not doing a lot of micro-marketing activity, going through that exercise is going to help them in, uh, and put them in good stead as they're engaging with customers at any part of the, of the sales I, process.
2: I, I like that. Thank you. I figured that's what you might say. But when I read it, because you, you, you know, you've know you been a sales guy and, sure. and all those ca- kind of things, and, I, and I've been a sales guy for a long time. I, and actually, if you said to me, what's the one thing that kills a target? It's people wasting time with people who don't have any money. I right. yeah. know like it's an obvious thing to say, but that just kills people, that.
1: Absolutely. Right. Backing the wrong horse. They're
2: back the wrong horse. Or when you yeah. see people canvassing, you know, when you see new people do it and, and you say, how you got on there, they're delighted by the fact that somebody spent a quarter of an hour with them on the phone. Yes. Now, the fact that person didn't have any money, was just right. sat in the car and had time to kill, that doesn't seem to occur. Yeah. And, you know, I was yeah. thinking about that within that model,
0: actually. Yeah. They're at the wrong level. They're just kicking tires, you know, whatever. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. Yeah, it's easy to be distracted by micro marketer activities. And I will tell you, it is seductive for a lot of sellers because it's activity. They're busy. They're doing things. Yeah. but They're busy. They're, they're not, not getting, getting rejected. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is why we have managers, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons why we have formulas that you can use where you look at your pipeline, you say, okay, where are you relative to? whether or not you're going to achieve your goal. And if you have a well-defined process, you can see how that, it's a mathematical calculation. Uh, Our recommendation is that if you begin to see that number go down, well, then you invest more time in uh, prospecting and micro-marketing. Basically, micro-marketing is the new prospecting.
2: Yes, I got that. I think of that. I liked it as well, I must say. So on
1: the micro-marketing thing, I, I would say ninety percent and a, no disrespect to any of our listeners.
2: Or oh, me, because you're gonna say salespeople people about at marketing. I'm appalling well, at
1: it. I'd say ninety percent of the candidates we engage with, the clients we engage with, they are very much sucked into that. Ooh, I went onto LinkedIn sales navigator and I liked some customers right. posts and I joined a group and I'm a micro marketer now, or
0: I'm a social seller now. Yeah, Thanks. absolutely. Yeah
1: what what if if i if you were an enterprise sales guy now and if you just have to start you started a new job tomorrow right. and somebody said to you tim where do i start
0: well first of all i think you need to have people to sell to right so one of the yeah. things we talk about in the chapter on micromarketing is targeting yeah targeting is the most important part what do your ideal prospects look like who are the people who have bought from you in the past let's look at our portfolio of capabilities and determine really what kind of problems or opportunities we're addressing there, and then figure out who, what title, what level, what what key issues am I really addressing. Um, and then from there, I can say, okay, if those are the people that I need to talk to, what companies or what organizations fit into that category, and where do they go to engage in conversations and get information, right? yeah. then I should focus my micro-marketing activities on those specific vehicles to reach out and connect to them, and these to be part of the mix. I don't think it replaces traditional kinds of prospecting activities. You're still going to pick up the phone and call people. Today, we have all these wonderful tools that we were not that were not available when we wrote the book yep. about doing effective sales cadences, things like sales loft and outreach and so forth that yep. enable me to do that much more effectively on an individual basis. Now sellers can be powerful account-based marketing people without a lot of effort. Yep and be able to use a variety of different vectors to get to people and begin conversations. So I I think sellers need to be adept at that today. So that's where I would start, is who are the people that I'm selling to, and then what are the best ways to reach them, and then eliminate all of those kinds of activities that aren't related to, enge- to engaging with those customers and starting a conversation. A lot of people ask me, hey, can you train us on the use of Twitter? My answer is, why? Ooh. You know, do your customers go to Twitter to gather information? If they do, then it makes sense. But maybe it could be handled by a marketing organization on Correct. a broader basis. I mean, maybe that's not something you want your sellers to do other than to demonstrate their own uh, brand and their own situational fluency. Um, you know, let's focus on the specific activities that are going to be practical. So uh, more activity is not what I'm recommending. Focus activity gen- to designed to generate results is, the, is really what a good micro marketer does. Great. Like
2: and,
1: it. Yeah, I thought, I, I, I could see that resonating very heavily with you, Michael. M- Michael is yeah. an activity guy. To be fair, I'm an activity guy, but Michael is much more so.
0: Well, I oh, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I love having a full calendar. Yeah, you know, everything so. else falls but into yeah, place. I
2: just, you know, I just think to myself, when you lose a deal, the people it really hurts, are the people that don't have much activity at the front end.
0: Yes, you should, I agree with that. You should
2: be able to lose something and for it just to be a slight, little brush on the shoulder rather than, blow. rather than a knockout punch is the yeah. reality. Now, here's one that I disagreed with you completely about, actually. Ooh. Okay, good. Uh, I, 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 and let's be clear. I know what this one I'm is. I'm the only person that disagrees with you uh, uh, from all of our listeners, but it's on the subject of motivation. Yes. I just don't believe at all that it is the sales leader's job to motivate the salesperson.
0: Well, let me, let me address it. I saw that conversation and I and I was screaming at my screen when, he, when it was going on. So um, I'm glad to have this talk. First of all, I'm glad that you're challenging me. You know, you start off with the parody of Fight Club, which is one of my favorite movies, by the way. Thank you. you know, I was hoping that we would have. I was a little disappointed when you say, oh, I really like the book. I have nothing to say. <laughs> oh, I've been softening you up like the rumble in the jungle. <laughs> oh, okay. So let's have a little Fight Club here. But um in the in the book, and by the way, I have to credit uh, Keith Eads, uh, who who really really focused, did a lot of research on on motivation. Being the CEO of our organization for okay. many many years, and that was something he was keenly interested in. Let me summarize uh, what I think is the key issue there. I agree with you that you cannot that a sales manager cannot motivate sellers. No. What they need to do is they need to understand what motivates each seller. And then tune their coaching to those motivations. And sometimes okay. those motivations can be extrinsic motivations. Some people are coin operated. I want to make more money. That's how I evaluate success. You know, so if you pay me more and direct my activities accordingly, mm. you know, that'll be a wonderful thing. But increasingly, especially with millennials today entering the sales force, most of those are intrinsically motivated. Yeah, they want to make good money, but they also want you know, they want to belong to an organization that's changing the world somehow, or they want to develop themselves so that they're ready for the next job and that they're looking more for the experience and so forth. So I think that it's, it's incumbent upon managers today to understand what motivates each seller and then tune the message. We see far too many managers who want to treat all sellers as coin-operated machines. Yeah. Now, if I give you the opportunity to put more money in the machine, you're going to produce more. I wish it was that easier, but human beings are more complex today. Yes, they are. So you know, can, can a manager motivate someone? I think the answer is it's up to the manager to determine how individuals are motivated and then connect that to the business objectives so, they're trying to
2: So, create. So long as I, so let me listen to you properly here to make sure I'm listening to you. What you're saying is um, I go out and hire somebody who is motivated. If they're not
0: motivated, I don't hire them. So it's not i agree with that i mean why why motivate some i I can give many examples of sellers that their resumes looked really good they worked for the right organizations they went to the right schools they had all the right training but then when we got them they just weren't very motivated to work very hard they don't have a work ethic you know and they're not i mean there's not a lot that we can do there you can try to figure out how to coach and develop that person But if they're not motivated they're not going to be productive
2: no right so you're saying go out hire somebody motivated and then find out how to work with what their individual
0: motivation point is. Yes, I agree. And in fact, if you can get that in the interview process, then that tells you as a manager, if I were to bring this person on board, where would I need to invest? And how? what kind of investments do I need to make? The other thing too is sometimes they have motivations that don't align with what you're trying to do as a business. Yeah, and They may look great on paper, but if their motivations are you know, I don't want to bring world peace uh, to the way. And well, you know, we're not in the world peace business, so the can't, not a, for the Red Cross. Good, yeah, yeah, and oh. it's more about alignment than it is about this idea that that I mean that sales managers can be drill sergeants and just yell at people and get them to be therefore motivated. Um, there, you know, there's a certain amount of discipline is one thing, but tuning into people's individual motivations is a much more effective and. I
2: I think we live, uh, yeah, this is a slightly soapbox moment, really, but I think we now live in a much more PC world, actually, where you can't just shout and swear at people. Yeah, actually, being shouted and sweared at, that didn't hurt me when I was 22.
1: It didn't hurt you when you were 22, but I think it would hurt you now at at 40.
2: 41, actually. 41. (laughs) I don't know, but my point is can you not shout and swear at millennials anymore, or are they going to switch off to that? They'd walk uh, you
1: millennials, they just won't have that. Don't you reckon? Nope.
0: Now, their, their we've tried it, Mike. environments is extremely low. I agree. I think, you know. Uh, do, you think uh, that, do you think we're better or worse for that then? <sighs> well, being a baby boomer and having grown up in the thou shalt perform or die uh, kind of <laughs> um, you know, I think it's worse if I can be so bold. I, I, I would do. Say I think it's loads worse. Yeah, I, I really do. It's certainly more challenging for us as managers. Uh, to because it's more complex uh, yeah. and so it, it's it's more we have to spend more time and effort to try to figure out you know what are the motivations on the other hand it's good because not everyone is motivated necessarily by just trying to you know make more money uh, some people are I mean that's a good byproduct but many many people are motivated by more altruistic reasons and I think if you can understand that and show how if you deliver on these altruistic reasons, then therefore we will both make more money, and that's a good thing. Then people will be much more motivated. So I, I think you've been a bit kind there, saying motivated <laughs>
2: by money. I think I, I think actually what motivated people in two thousand in sales group was fear. No, I, 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 oh come on, man! I, I, uh, I, early I, Computer Associates, wrong. early Parametric Technology, all those companies. That was a fair culture, I'm sure of it. No, it was a
1: mixture. That's nonsense, Mike. That's, yeah, it's proper nonsense, that, mate. It was that those cultures, those environments were a mixture of might is right style management. They were a mixture of extremely strong financial incentives. But most importantly, a lot of those environments around the turn of the millennium were actually cult like. Um, Well, I did use the word
2: culture in my statement. Yeah, in the
1: true sense of the word culture. And I think yes. that it was a combination. I think you couldn't say it was predominantly ruled by fear. Fear would become a part of it. People. I think were fear was definitely frightened a part to get it. fired. Frightened of frightened extremely of powerful characters not delivering, not delivering the number. But there was equally an awful there, lot of yeah, incentives to make money. There was fear of money.
2: being fired, like you just said. You know, a baby. You sell or you bugger off. You know that 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 as a yeah. basic human
0: primary motivator is fear.
1: And is the business well, I, world worse off for not having that now? I
0: think yeah. I, Yes. Well, and you talked you talked about it in your conversation, right? Uh, that hey, you know, I just had a uh, you know, a wife's just had a baby, and we yeah. had, you know, got college expenses, and you know, a mortgage to pay, and so you know, I, I remember I got a call from a uh, VP of uh, of sales uh, recently, and he was a, a former customer who had moved to another customer, and he called and he said, "Hey Tim, I've just joined this um, new startup organization." And you know we need to establish some standards for how we engage with customers. And can you come in and train my people? And by the way, my CEO said that if I don't get this solved so that we can have some predictable forecast of future revenue within the next ninety days, I'm going to be fired. And if that happens, you know my wife's going to leave me, and I'm going to end <laughs> up drinking again, and I'm going to end up dead in a gutter somewhere. <laughs> so he's course, acting yeah. through fear, isn't he? Absolutely. And so I'm listening to this, and of course the way I'm reacting is, okay, great, no discount on this deal. So, yeah. you know, this is, be, this is going to be awesome. There is pain here. Exactly.
2: Yeah, but it's just regime. like
0: solution selling, right? We try to determine what people's pains are or what their potential opportunities are. That's really the two flip sides of the same goal. You know, now I think millennials are more motivated by the potential opportunity and the goals they're trying to reach. And a lot of us old school sellers are more concerned about the pain of not achieving the numbers, and what could that yeah. you know happen badly there.
2: Abs- so Absolutely. Now I'd like you to refer you to your book again. Actually, page one hundred and forty-nine. Okay. You have a, uh, a a formula here, which I thought was an absolute beauty. Is I that thought, the one with the p
1: times? I the thought p? you
2: could have written a book
0: on this. I yeah. thought this was a book in its own right. This. I, I really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, we have a, a complete program on this entire chapter, and oh, really. Uh, Oh yeah, and someday I still call it sales management and coaching, and it it describes establishing a cadence or rhythm for inspection, uh, looking at where your data comes from to enable you to do that effectively, uh, and frankly, time in a way that's that's, that's time efficient. Okay, uh, because spans of control have increased dramatically all over the world. I was working with a client the other day, and their manager to uh, seller reports is now over 16 on average. Well. You can't coach individuals when you have that many folks. You've got to have a very efficient process to be able to do that, um, and then you can direct the coaching to the specific issue that needs to have, you know that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And this formula, which is you know the pain, power, vision, value, collaborate, and compelling reason to act, PPVVCC, is a we find that to be a much more effective framework for having a coaching conversation than the usual kind of qualification criteria. You know, most people are, they talk about, oh, tell me about this opportunity. Well, do they have budget, authority, you know, who are the key people? What's their specific need in the time frame for decision? Yeah. Well, that's good information to know. But by the time I have all of that, you know, they're well down the, 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 the path towards a decision and we may be losing. But if I look at what problems we're trying to solve and who are the key people in the organization, you know, do they have a vision of how they can help them? You know, and if not, how do we create one? Um, you know, do they understand the value? Are they collaborating or working with us? Is there evidence that they're engaging with us? And then there's is there some deadline or compelling reason, to act, or can we help establish one mm. to compel them to go ahead and make a decision? If I understand those things, I'm going to have a much better coaching conversation than well, just yeah. tell me about the deal and who's buying the thing and where do we go from there. So we find that to be a very effective I love framework.
2: That. I have one more point, Jonathan, because I can see you jumping at the bit. To Come me. on,
1: Pricey, you get it out there.
2: Right, so here's one. So, so I like this chapter six which mm-hmm. talked about the value driver persona. And for those people listening, I'm going to summarise this very, very badly, Tim, and you can correct right. me in a minute. But essentially what it says is, let's collaborate with the buyer. Let's create a collaborative platform so that when we're selling to our buyer, we have this collaborative platform. Now, this is a beautifully idealistic scenario. Yes. I am concerned, however, <laughs> that whilst Jonathan is creating his collaborative platform with Microsoft, as how to sell them some recruitment services. I'm just going to wade in and sell them something. And Jonathan's mm-hmm. going to go, oh, please come on, Satya. Please fill in the form. Please make sure they've done it. And I'm just going to go, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, realistically in the real world, I mean, I'm taking the mickey a little bit, but that just felt to me a touch idealistic. I mean, how easily adopted is this with the people that you've trained to do this?
0: Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a good uh, observation. Um, two things that I want to comment about this. Number one... And Keith Eads and I debated this a little bit when we wrote the book. I actually think that there are four personas, not three. I would take the value driver and I would split that into two. Okay, The value driver is the ability to identify and communicate and come to agreement on the impact or the value. And that yeah. happens throughout the entire seller buyer engagement. In fact, it's happening earlier and earlier in the engagement now than ever before. And there's some discipline. And we talk about some of the collaborative tools that you can use and I just read some fantastic research that uh, Gong.io published on their uh, blog about using before and after stories to convey value and how much more effective that can be than even detailed business cases today. So there's a lot of things happening and being able to convey value in a way that's not really onerous for a seller. The second persona that I would split that into is what I would call a risk mitigator. Right? The perception of risk by buyers today, especially we're at the very end of the evaluation cycle about Mm. do we do something different or not is such is still elevated at a very high level. There's still, and in fact, it's more complicated today because there are more people involved, especially in the B2B sale, uh, b 2 B2B sale. Mm. So the the kind of tools that we're suggesting around collaboration are really around consensus building. Are we headed in the right direction? Do we have all the right people involved? And that's actually becoming a more important part of the purchase process today than it was when we originally wrote the book. So, if you're selling complex solutions with a lot of people involved, the need for a collaboration plan, where you're mit- basically the purpose of that is to is to provide a checklist to your buyer of all the things they need to consider, so they can make a decision confidently and mitigate any perception right. of risk. Okay. Okay. Now, that being said, sometimes you, you know, I had I had a uh, a client of ours call me recently say, "Hey Tim, I just talked to a customer." And they, they said they want to buy product X, Y, Z, right? So um, should I should I pull out my collaborative sale book and do a collaboration plan and force them to go through all of this? Or should I just take the order? And I'm like, just, just take, the <laughs> take the order. order. Take it.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. What's wrong with you? Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, why are you wasting my time? Call that person back and take the order.
1: (laughs) Yeah, take the order, go home, open a bottle of wine. No,
0: no, I've got to go all the way around the board to go. So, I mean, it's... Methodology is there to help people get to a decision. But if you are able to get to that goal quicker and more effectively, then don't let the methodology stand in your way. I'm glad you you said that. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense to me.
1: As always... Another author that's clarified thinking after we've read the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got one one more, a couple more things I just wanted to talk to you about before we wrap up today. One of the things Michael and I have talked about a lot when we were reading the book and even offline was there's a, you talk a bit about sales process. Yes. And, you know, Mike and I are very fond of playbooks and sales process. Um, yes. It, it's, it's a thing that's very dear to our heart. What we find is, and, it, and perhaps it's coming back partially to the concept of the millennial, but partially to just the job market in many respects, mm-hmm. is that we're currently in an extremely candidate short job market in the UK. I'm pretty certain it's the same in the US. Oh,
0: it, oh no, it's it's very hard to find people. We're in an era of full employment here, yeah. effective full employment. So yeah. it's hard to get.
1: Same, same here. And, and so what you've got is massive wage inflation and you've got some pretty big egos walking around some of the offices of some of our clients now. And I think our clients, a lot of them would love to implement sales process, but there's two things going on. One is, if I'm a company and I'm paying, and it's not uncommon, £120,000 sterling basic salary, mm-hmm. part of what's driving the company is they're thinking, for £120,000 do I really need to implement sales process and governance Surely for that money, I just send the guy out into the wilderness and he returns with a giant kill. Yeah. Um, Yeah, go on. You're going to say something then.
0: Let me respond to that. I mean, I wish, I wish if that was the case, if we could just offer a lot of money and then automatically get really great people who already come fully equipped and know how to sell and engage with your customers, uh, that would be a wonderful thing. There are just not that many people. Okay, it's just nice. it's hard to find everyone. We call them eagle performers yeah, yeah. that intuitively do the right thing and just have been out there and know, you know, some of them are students of the game and some of them are not some of them are just naturally gifted at this. But they're only about 15% of the, of the world's population and a lot That's of them not- are already currently employed, right? So yeah. it's just hard to find people. But if I can give someone a map of what success looks like, and what an optimal customer experience when they're engaging with me as a salesperson, and my team should look like, then I can become much more productive much more quickly. Right. And I can, I can then execute that behavior more consistently. Um, it even helps the, the Eagle performers as well, because now they have a, 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 some kind of definition of rules of the game as to when do I involve other resources and how do I work within my organization? Yeah. Without that, it's up to them to decide how to do it themselves. Uh, I think that it is um almost impossible to find, especially today, uh, people who come to the table ready to be productive on day one. You know, even the most experienced seller, it takes them time to learn the culture and learn the procedures and learn what resources available and build the situational fluency that's necessary to be effective to sell in that organization. But having a, a definition, a playbook, if you will, of what success looks like, now I know specifically what kind of things I need to do in the vast majority of selling situations in order to be effective and I can focus my energy on developing those aspects. So I think it's a shortcut even for experienced sellers. Uh, So what you're saying
2: there is that that will then help them shortcut their integration into the company. That's right. By not having to learn it, they can just pitch up and see what it looks like. That's right. Well,
0: they still have to be able to do it well and the way that it's done is going to vary different, you know, from organization to organization depending on what they sell, who they sell to and our resources they have available but at least that way they have some kind of a, of a map uh, as opposed to, okay, we're going to plop you in a territory and here's a list of accounts, go forth and multiply. Which you know, is
1: what uh, we see.
0: Oh, that's yeah. 95%. I don't know what it's like in the States. There's but,
1: almost an, el- an elasticity point beyond which the fundamental nature of the relationship changes right. and, the, and the client that almost like a switch point, isn't it? Yeah, listen, i paying the, you 100 grand basic, yeah, whatever. Where, where the client just decides, I no longer have to invest in you, I no longer need to support you, I no longer need to pay for an SDR because I'm paying right. you so much money that you're just going to go out and bring a woolly mammoth back home for us to all eat.
2: Yeah, do, do you know
1: what I, I mean? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, uh, show me an organization where they've been able to do that effectively and I'll show you a very rare animal indeed. Yeah. So, but it, 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 it,
1: it's, I, I find that's often VC driven as well. where 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 there's so much of an aggressive pressure on on results yeah so the client goes out and tries to buy a shortcut
0: you know ironically we work with a lot of private equity and venture capital organizations who are investing in portfolio companies and they've always been really good in looking at the operations and squeezing out that you know one one hundredth of one cent of you know operational costs where they really have not been particularly good is how do we increase the top line, which produces a much more multiplicative effect on the profitability of the organization? Mm. And so we'll often go in and help either pre-investment or post-investment to figure out how to improve that sales operations. And a lot of it is, let's define what good looks like for this organization in terms of sales engagement process. And now we have an idea of who it is we need to hire for this and what kind of skills they need to have and how the managers can manage to it. I mean, so many good's So many good things flow out of having an effective sales process definition. And yes, we recognize that not all opportunities are going to comply with the sales process and lockstep every single time. We need to be, you know, it's just a model that we can use to compare. So but once we have it, then we have some point that we can use to uh, make some real incremental improvement.
1: Okay. And what's the next book going to be about?
0: Well, that's a good question. You know, you have raised several of them already. I mean, we could write a whole book about sales yeah. management and coaching and how to do that effectively today, especially with all the different analytical technology and artificial intelligence that's available today. I think I think we'll also we're taking a serious look at some of the trends that are happening now in the industry. You know, the the increase in the number of people that are involved, the use of these kinds of advanced technologies to yeah. help sellers. Uh, the the increase in and in, uh, in all the kinds of uh, best practices around account based marketing. Um, I mean, there's been a whole lot of things that happened since the book was written. that are affecting sales today, and we're gathering a lot of information about those. We may, those may, I think, may eventually manifest themselves in a book. I personally would like to write a book about just basic: what is a good buyer aligned, you know, customer journey driven sales process, and how do you create yeah. that? You know, I mean. I can't tell you how many clients so I go in and I say, Do you have a sales process? And 100% of the time he is, Oh, yes, of course we do. And then what that really means is, Well, we have the drop down classifications in salesforce.com. Yeah. And that's it. OK. It's not really a sales process. It's just an opportunity qualification you know, or opportunity classification. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I concur. Yeah. It, so the, I the think there's thing, a lot of
0: work that can be done there the, as
1: well. The book that, uh, and I've said this before to some of our authors, is I, I don't understand why nobody is anymore writing a book about the one-to-one moment that you walk into a room with a customer. That mm-hmm. day, I, I, you know, we've, this is what, this we're coming up for a year now of book club. Mm. In the last year, we haven't yet seen a book, maybe Jordan Belfort's book, maybe. I, I'm about am of Belfort's book. About the micro interaction of it's me and it's you in a room yeah. with the customer and this is where we begin. And I don't understand why nobody wants to write that content.
0: I I think there's a lot of really interesting research. Um, There's a professor out of Florida State University, Left Bonnie, who did some research recently about that kind of interaction. And one of the things he found, which is really interesting, is that the sellers that are the most productive today, they're on the right side of the curve, they have been trained to deal with multiple sales situations yeah. and basically all aspects of the buyer seller, you know, process and they have, they're well-schooled in four or more different methodologies and they bring the right one. If they need to sell transactionally, they do transaction yeah. if they need sell solution or a value focused or whatever. The ones that are sort of in the middle of the curve have been trained on one approach. Yeah. And they use it all the time. And sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. Not surprising the ones that are at the end of the curve have not been trained at all. So, mm. or they don't have any exposure. So all of that has to do with what happens when I engage with customers at the point of contact, whether that be virtually like this yep. or face to face, having those the more weapons in my at my disposal to use so that I can work with the client to get to uh, to beat whatever it is we're trying to beat here and come to some kind of value-added decision, uh, I think that's going to become increasingly important for sellers. As, uh, I
1: concur. I okay. concur. Right, Tim, you've been an amazing guest, and it genuinely, Michael and I were really excited about having you on the show. Uh, you uh, have not disappointed.
2: It's completely
0: lived up to it. I'm yeah, really grateful for your
2: time. Thank you.
1: Yeah, so I
0: really uh, enjoyed it, and thank you so much for all you're doing to try to Raise the level of the sales profession. It's uh, it's a passion of mine. And so please keep up the good work.
1: Yeah, well, we, we love it. We, we, we I think this is one of the things we enjoy the most during the week, even though actually we enjoy doing business even more. Um, and at that, thank you ever so much, Tim Sullivan.
0: Very good, thank you. All right, let's
1: hit the titles.